Joe, your your piece I think is so uh, fascinating, and clearly you have somehow uh, gotten this very erudite musicological and and historical background. Where how did you how did you come by that? What can I ask a question first? You you can. Do you mind if I interrupt you, Joe? Mine is better. <laughs> I I don't think so because Joe, who is our guest today? <laughs> <laughs> His name is Joe Fishman, and he's uh, on the faculty at Vanderbilt. And it, it, Joe, is this your audition to become a permanent fixture on the pocket, maybe replacing me in a new series called Joe and Joe on IP Law? Uh, you know, I don't know why it needs to be a replacement. <laughs> it, could, it, <laughs> well, could be, it could be a spinoff. Well, obviously not a longtime listener to the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, you want to? What was your question again? <laughs> oh boy, I think I think the listeners have it well in hand, as as does Joe. Yeah. So how, how, how did I get where I am? Um, so, uh, back in a former life before, um, I, uh, decided to go to law school. Um, I was studying musicology Ah. growing up. My dream in life was to be a film composer. I would, you know, listen to like John Williams scores and think, you know, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, Joe, do you still listen to film scores? Like when you're working? Is that still a genre uh, you like? I listen to a lot of music when I'm working. Um, not, I would say, uh, other than maybe the score to Jurassic Park, if <laughs> that's part of my, uh, my uh, usual rotation um, in the background. But, I, I uh, only jump in because I listen to a lot of film scores and, and, uh-huh. and like a lot of like new modern composers will take mm-hmm. a turn at scoring film or TV these days, and it's a good way to hear yeah. new music, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, that was my feeling at the time was that, you know, the, my, my, my favorite um, new compositions that uh, I, I was encountering as, as, well, as a teenager was through film scores. And I would come home and I would remember more about the score than I would about the plot of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But do you do that, Christian, while you're, while you're working? Do you listen to those things? Film scores are pretty good while you're working. I, things without words, I can, mm-hmm. you know, right. I listen to a lot of instrumental and, and kind of, a lot, a lot of new music of the kind you know that I like is, right. is, is instrumental anyway. But yeah, I've heard I've heard musicians say that uh, because they because of their experience as producers of music, they are able to. And I don't mean sort of a producer as in a, a sort of record producer, but just producers of musical sound. Um, mm-hmm. That that for them, it's like listen. It is like listening to people talking because yeah. it's lingu- it has a linguistic quality that it wouldn't for someone who isn't necessarily adept at That's producing why, yeah. sound. Listening to music that moves around too much, it, I, I, like long, languorous, um, atonal things. I, I, I don't sure. know. I, it, there are some things that are easier to work to than others, and, and not every instrumental composition is easy to work to. Uh, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, there's, there's some music that demands more active listening than others. Um, uh, so, right, I'm not, there's not a lot of like Alban Berg um, in my, uh, uh, background music, um, as I'm trying to get work done. But, uh, uh, so, so I, and, uh, and I think that sounds good for many reasons. I think not having a lot of Alban Berg in your life is, is just a okay on many, many, many grounds, but oh, um, I, 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 I like Berg. It's just, um, it's just not, uh, if, if I'm listening to it, 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 it demands every, inch of my being i cannot focus on anything else otherwise it's just not going to work i found it to be helpful uh to listen to it while i'm trying to 
not pay attention to the person sawing through my leg. I think that's a good, <laughs> I think it's a good, it's a good uh, anesthetic in that regard. But I'll have to give that a try sometime. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked that you have strong opinions about these things, Jim. Shocking. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pure sonicist, I discovered, reading this paper. I don't, Joe, I, once again, I've derailed Joe's question and the train of thought that you were exploring. I don't know if you want to pick up. So you're a musicologist. Yeah, so, so that, you know, my interest in composition at some point uh, mutated, probably in college, I- into an interest in music theory and music history more generally. Um, and when I uh, uh, was graduating college, I was envisioning myself um, uh, as an academic, but not at a law school. I was going to be on a musicology faculty. Um, and I w- went off and did a master's degree in it. And I just, it, I enjoyed it, but I couldn't see uh, devoting my life to it. Um, it just didn't seem to, uh, people were always telling me, you know, this is the thing to do if you can't. Uh, imagine doing anything else with your life. And I kept thinking, well, I could imagine doing lots of other things besides this. Uh, So I did what what all failed uh, musicologists do, which is apply to law school. Um, And I sort of came around full circle um, because when I was trying to think of um, uh, what areas of law excited me the most, I was trying to think, okay, who are the clients that I'd like to work with? And my interest in and music led me to copyright and to IP more generally. Um, and then as I started reading and thinking more about uh, intellectual property, I, I started thinking, well, you know, I actually, I, I like scholarship. I just, um, I had the wrong field originally. Um, I like legal scholarship a, a little more than I, I liked a lot of the musicological scholarship that I was reading. Um, but uh, I, I, I still try and find um, occasions to uh, uh, bring the two together. So this is probably the clearest example of that for me, which is a, it was a lot of fun for me to combine the two worlds. Yeah, what we're going to talk about today definitely combines those those worlds. But I, I, before we get there, I want do, do you think legal scholarship passes the same test for you that you set out for musicology? I mean... It seems to me that being a legal scholar is almost by definition for people who can imagine themselves doing lots of other things, <laughs> you know, rather than... Like, <laughs> what do you mean by well, that? Well, I, I mean, do you feel like you couldn't do anything, like you wouldn't want to do anything else? I mean, part, part of the reason people get interested in the law is because of the ability to become, to study so many different things, you know, as the field sure. that is almost, you know, by definition, kind of applied yeah. philosophy, applied history. It's like where the rubber meets the road, where all these different elements of human endeavor are filtered through the the prism of dispute and we have to do something, right? We need people who are able to become experts in those things. So that's why I think maybe there's a difference. I mean, maybe we're a little bit more, you know, some of us more than others, I'll admit, uh, uh, kind of a little more like dilettantish in the kinds of things that that interest us and and maybe it attracts those kinds of people. But but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, Joe, uh, for you, um, uh, legal scholarship passed that test that musicology didn't. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I I don't know if it, it it might have passed that test if I had um, demanded that test of myself. I'm not sure if I had felt like the quite the same urgency um, for a couple reasons. One, even you know, though the uh, the uh, hiring market is not what it once was, you know, ten years ago. It's still, I think, I would give. Anyone uh, on the um, 
uh, on the entry level market for becoming a law professor, better odds than on the entry level market for becoming uh, a, a tenure track musicology professor. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's part of it. The other is, you know, there's just a lot more that you can do with a law degree um, uh, uh, profitably um, than you can do with a musicology degree. So um, uh, it's it, 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 this, the stakes seemed um, a little less dire about the decision to go to law school than they did about the decision to actually pursue a, a PhD in, uh, um, in musicology. That being said, um, you know, I've, I, I haven't been at, at this um, for, for that long, but for the years that I've been doing it, I, I, um, I, I can't imagine doing uh, uh, something else that um, I would prefer to be doing. So if I, if I was demanding this test of myself, then I, I think it would probably pass. Yeah, I think yeah. There's a, the problem with Christian's question, as it so often is, uh, <laughs> is, is that it takes the wrong unit of analysis. Oh, boy. Uh, so, and, and, and it's delightful <laughs> what, what, what to hear another... I, what unit did I get wrong this time, it, Joe? It's delightful to hear another Joe uh, spot that <laughs> and nail it. Um, uh, but, uh, the, of course, because the correct unit of analysis isn't just the scholarship, it's the, it's the whole package, right? It's, it's teaching the, the scholarly activity, the being in a law school community with all that that entails in terms of serving your community and trying to make it a better one. And, and the whole thing, you take the whole thing together. And I think I, I can definitely say I'm not particularly interested in doing much else than this. I think I have one of the best, Wait, but- uh, uh, you, you know, know this is a, oddly all right. This is oddly a good bridge to the actual topic. To, you know, because the topic for today is you know what what makes music copyrightable. What makes music music? Right. What makes music this mm-hmm. right? And, and this is like, but but similarly, we're going to talk about comparisons between music and what elements to compare. So this is oddly, I think, apropos because if you you say it's the whole package, but a musicologist has a whole package too, right? And so the right. whole package of being a musicologist versus the whole package of being a legal academic, what's different there? You know, they're both in a, in a group of colleagues who are doing interesting things. They teach students. All, what's, what's different is the substance, right? I mean, there, there are other differences too because there's the, the different fields have cultures that, that mm. are distinct beyond the underlying substance. I understand that. But, but mainly it is that, that substantive thing. So if, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything other than musicology, it means that, you know, although you'd, you might get a lot of what you like in legal academia, you would rather be doing the music part of that whole package than, sure. the, than the legal part. What am I missing there? What am I doing wrong? Uh, that sounds right. That, okay. uh, so that's a great segue. Okay. Uh, and I think w- w- I also like the fact that, that you, you phrased what the topic of the paper is about in, in a way, sort of the way I read it, which is that it's about copyrightability, but on its face... It, it tries very hard, I think Joe would say, to be not about that, but about uh, infringement analysis. Yeah. Right. But, but in IP, the, the, the sort of modulating back and forth between um, validity and infringement, is, it's kind of hard to get away from that yeah, like sort what, of constant what, modulation. What are we putting a fence around? What is it here that we're putting the fence around? Right? Well, and how do we operationalize the, the, the fencing process itself, right? Because there are some things you could say, let's do it at the validity stage sort of the gateway to, does this person have a right at all? And the others you could do at the infringement stage. Yes, they have a right. It just has this scope. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's you know, scope versus Two ways existence. of looking at the same thing. But Joe, how would you, I mean, I, I, for people who maybe don't know 
much, if anything, about IP, but have heard about copyright before. They know it exists and they know about music. They've heard that that is also something that exists. Like, how, how, would, you, how would you explain your, your paper, the, the question you're trying to answer here? So I, I'm looking at um, how courts um, assess uh, what makes one piece of music similar to another piece of music. Um, I, I uh, agree uh, with uh, original Joe's uh, uh, characterization of, of what I am trying to do, which is which is to look at it in terms of infringement analysis. Um, so if somebody goes into court uh, saying your song is too much like my song, what is it that the court is supposed to look at um, for assessing that similarity? Um, and you know, the normal way that things have developed in, in most, across most kinds of copyrightable subject matter, music is copyrightable subject matter, but, you know, so are books and movies um, and, 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 and scripts for plays and, and, and uh, various other things. The way the law has developed generally is that there are, there's lots of different elements or uh, different arrangements of elements that could trigger an infringement fine. Um, um, so, you know, if we were talking about a literary work, um, it could be that you copied the exact text, uh, but it could also be that you copied the plot or that you copied uh, particular details of the, the setting in which the action takes place or, or, or that you copied um, a, a, a particularly delineated and recognizable character, um, even if uh, uh, the text and the plot that you use is, is totally different. The character could be enough. Um, that's how it, it works with most subject matter. But when you get to music, at least um, up until pretty recently, um, there's been this curious um, uh, uh, singular focus on melody, um, which my non-technical definition of that is just what um, you might um, uh, uh, sing if you were asked to hum a, hum a few bars. And melody is what you, you tend to think of as the tune um, of a piece. And that, going back to um, the 19th century, right, when uh, copyright law first began protecting music, that was what courts cared about. Um, it, you, you needed to show melodic similarity um, and all the other stuff that one might copy, even if that other stuff, be it the, the orchestration or uh, harmonic sequences um, or the timbre, the particular sonic quality of the notes being played, um, even if all of that was original to the actual author, right, it wasn't something that was just stock or commonplace, even if all of that was original, courts tended not to care about it. Um, and the reasons that courts used for putting this primacy on melody, uh, what I'm arguing in this paper is that they were bad reasons, and we ought not to uh, promote those reasons anymore, but uh, the focus on melody was actually this useful fiction. Uh, because it was this one little corner, maybe not so little, but it was one corner of copyright law where there was actually a signal to um, second comers, to downstream creators that were trying to figure out what am I allowed to borrow and what am I not allowed to borrow, where they, they, they had a, a reasonable idea of, of what it was. It was don't copy the melody. Everything else was a sort of free-for-all. And in music, you know, people could uh, could tell um, uh, where where the boundaries were at least better than they could um, in other areas, and that's something that the copyright system hasn't really tried 
to achieve much. It's the assumption has among judges has always been, well, we're never going to achieve it. And I think there are at least some corners, music being one, where uh, we can achieve it and we accidentally have achieved it. Um, and it's it's worth hanging on to, just not for the reasons that are traditionally uh, offered for, for emphasizing that. So can you hum uh, Schoenberg? Please no. Yeah. Um, the, or, uh, so, or, or, or can you hum the, uh, the, you know, on Led Zeppelin two, I think is, uh, Moby Dick with John Bonham's famous, like long drum solo. Can't hum that either. Right. I mean, so, I mean, this is what the paper gets into this, right. Gets into yeah. But this. before we do that, okay. I want to, I want to go back and talk about the fact that you're so, so part of what I think is so interesting here is that the, the history of protection of musical expression in Germany actually starts starts this way, right? Yeah. Uh, in the private arrangement, it explicitly focuses on melody uh, as a way to get to the heart of the matter among the people in the trade, right? right. Who, who are publishing. And in that sense, this sort of, I mean, in a way, it's, 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 a, it's sort of a Lisa Bernstein, you know, diamond trade story where you've got the people in the field who understand the custom, who understand what's important, and they say, this is what we want to do. Right. And then the law can come along later and sort of ratify that. Uh, mm -hmm. But the people who really depend day in and day out on making a going business out of a, a particular activity, this is what they focus on. I find uh, that, that fascinating. This is, this is what they focused on. Right. This is what they focused on. And, and you know, at, at that time and place, it was clear that the people, at least the publishers who had power in the field, thought that their store of value Lay, as I read the description, lay in the melodies. Like we own a bunch of melodies. Yeah, that's right. And right. if you were if you were working in you know mid nineteenth century Germany, that made a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, and and when they come to when they when they sort of contrast that from from someone who comes along and doesn't add a new melody, but rather takes an existing melody and creates a new orchestration and an alternative arrangement with different harmonies or, or related harmonies. What I find so interesting is there at that very same moment, the infringement inquiry and the, and the, and the validity inquiry are, are, are hand in hand. And, and so in a way, your paper says these are bad reasons, but I want to explore the contrary hypothesis for a while to try to get originality to do as much as it can do in, in thinking through this issue, right? That, that, and, and the reason why I think it's fascinating is because from a patent law perspective, there's this one figure, Justice Nelson, who you point to as authoring this very important and interesting case early in uh, American uh, U.S. copyright law history. But he's also one year later authoring the foundational opinion about obviousness Hotchkiss uh, against Greenwood, um, and it's the same guy, Justice Nelson. So, mm -hmm. um, and and I so I think originality and infringement are kind of they're 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 not just two ways to talk about a similar issue or concern, but they're but they're sort of like in, inseparable twins almost um, in in my mind in this story. So so to keep us back in that era and and walk through like. What is the originality conception that animates this infringement inquiry if you're thinking about melody being all that matters? Yeah, so um, you, you could only infringe uh, if you have copied um, 
something that is is protectable and the only thing that's protectable is something that's original to you and um there's uh uh the, the you know jolly vijac which is like, i think the case that you're yes that you're mentioning so um is this um 1850 or so um u.s decision that uh in large part mimics um similar case law uh, uh um, from a few years earlier uh, in the uk mm -hmm. um looking at well, what is the contribution and what is the significance of the contribution of somebody that makes a new arrangement of existing melodies. And there's this dichotomy um, that the court sets up um, and that I think casts a very long shadow over the development of music copyright, yeah. uh, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, if you make a new melody, you are a creator, you are an inventor. Um, in the court's words, yeah, that that is something of significance, and that is the 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 heart. When we talk about a composition, that's the heart of the composition. Um, if you, on the other hand, merely uh, arrange an existing melody, even if that arrangement is something that nobody's ever heard before, what you are is not an inventor. What you are is a mechanic. Yep. Um, you uh, you are um, uh, you 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 have some talents. Um, at, at plying your trade, uh, but you are not an author uh, in the copyright sense, and therefore you get nothing. And so someone who, a, a great, in that, in that universe, it sounds like a great infringement defense would be to say, um, I have a very different melody, which shows that I am, I am also a creator, not a copyist. Um, and, and the, the, Although Jolie against Jacques is, an, is a validity case, not an infringement case, you can see the way that they would connect mm -hmm. in, in, in a contrasting situation. Like, I didn't just arrange the same melody, which was in the public domain. Um, I, I uh, cr came up with a whole new thing, and the whole new thing means a whole new melody. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that, um, I'm skipping forward about 100 years, but that, uh, <laughs> it, dur during, um, uh, uh, the development of bebop music um, in the 20th century, that was um, what a lot of musicians did. They took uh, uh, existing harmonic sequences um, and, and, and just to emphasize this, these were not harmonic sequences that were just um, stock, um, uh, uh, I mean, these, these had an identifiable author. Um, I was gonna ask you, these are, you're talking about chord progressions essentially, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you cite that, a lot of them took chord progressions from Gershwin mm -hmm. and then did the, uh, the improvisation and layering on top of those chord progressions. And, and as someone, I'm not, you know, I've listened to some bebop jazz, but I'm just not steeped in it. Yeah. Are, are those, are those like either subtly recognizable? Like anybody would maybe, you know, if I weren't steeped in it, I might listen to it and then maybe later find myself like humming some Gershwin that I otherwise knew and, and not really realizing why I'm making that connection. Is it that kind of connection or, or is it obvious to anyone listening that there's a, a similarity there? How, how, how does that manifest in terms of the listener? Uh, um, you know, I would, I mean, I hear it. I would imagine that um, uh, these were uh, uh, conscious, deliberate references for people that know the canon. Um, and if you know the canon and you heard it, you could, you know, hear that um, uh, uh, which um, uh, original um, chord progression. This was meant to channel, um, and then that's what that's what put these pieces in dialogue with each other. But um, you know, when when they started out, um, they they weren't trying to write new fixed melodies. 
um, on top of these chord progressions. It was only once uh, it, it they realized that um, you know plugging in, checking the melody box uh, was what gave them a ticket um, to their own copyright um, and uh, a, a, a way to avoid infringing somebody else's copyright. Then they started, okay, so now we'll put new melodies in because that's what makes us uh, uh, authors that get a copyright and that don't infringe others' copyrights. Um, so, so what you're saying, um, Joe, about uh, uh, the the d defense here that is planted um, in the 19th century when talking about um, uh, 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 infringement here um, that absolutely uh, that that is a seed that 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 grows up in a totally different musical genre in the following century. So what's what do you think the flaw is in the originality theory uh, that's that's used in Galmain and in Jolie against Jacques and in the, the, the cases that sort of follow that train of thinking that melody is the soul of music? So I think it, it can be the soul of some music. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's drastically um, over-inclusive to say that about the, um, the full range of music uh, that passes through uh, the copyright systems turnstiles these days. So, um, uh, you know, C, we were talking about jazz. Um, that's one example, you know, C, um, modern art music, hip hop, electronic dance music. Um, I think even uh, top 40 music that you would hear on the radio, um, the top line melody is an important part of it, uh, but the underlying production uh, also matters a huge deal, and that actually cashes out in the money that producers get paid uh, because their contribution uh, matters a great deal to the uh, commercial success or failure um, of the track. So to, to focus on melody alone um, seems awfully myopic for a lot of music that is being made today. Like descriptively myopic. It just doesn't yeah. capture the reality. And, but, and of course, what the, what the law is trying to do is it may be, in part, uh, it, it's engaged in an enterprise about descriptive accuracy, but, but maybe not, right? Maybe it's trying to do some other things too. Descriptive accuracy in what way? What, what, accurate as to what? I mean, that seems, seems to indicate that it's hitting a target. Is the target like the... Platonical, the, the platonical, the platonic idea of what music really is, or or is it some purpose? I'm trying to figure out. For me, it's hard to answer the question about what should be copyrightable and therefore subject to infringement suits without knowing what we're trying to do. Yeah, well, so, I mean, the 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 doctrine often talks about um, you know what is qualitatively significant, um, and you know you could reasonably ask in response to that, well, significant to whom? But I think. Um, just about any way you answer that question, it's going to be something besides melody. So um, uh, on a commercial level, um, uh, in terms of what's going to make, uh, make a track sell, it's not just melody. You know, the, the people making this music are paying an awful lot for things besides the top line melody. Right. If you were to take a more uh, aesthetic, um, uh, just sort of forget about the, the, the commerce for a second, um, you know, as, as art, what makes um, music important? I mean, in some cases, maybe it's melody, but there's, you know, we have over a century um, of, of music at this point whose significance um, 
to the composer whose significance to the uh, uh, development um, and innovation um, uh, in the making of music um, had, a, had nothing to do with melody. Um, you have all kinds of music where there isn't even an identifiable melody to begin with. Um, so, you know, how, it just seems to me, however you're assessing significance, um, the answer uh, has to include more uh, than than just the melody. Well, if if your if your objective in in terms of a copyright system is to ensure that uh, there is enough of a return on creative investment to encourage people to continue to make that investment, the existence of all these musical forms that are not strongly reliant on melody for their innovations suggests that. Um, well, I guess it suggests two things. One is maybe the copyright incentive isn't all that important because there's a lot of creativity and and uh, uh, and innovation going on in the in the musical expression space that the melody obsession wouldn't seem to speak to, right? Um, but it also suggests and, 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 that and importantly for people who, including me, who aren't expert in this stuff, we're making a distinction between copyright in a particular recording. And copyright in the composition, and we're only talking about the composition right now. That's right. Yes, because right. that's historically that's the through line that we've been discussing the whole time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I, just, I just wanted to be clear because you know modern pop music. The reason you can't there are multiple reasons you can't just copy what you hear, you know, uh, what what you stream and then release it as your own and sell it. But one of those is you can't copy that actual recording. And you know, we're speaking to composition here. So, so you've got the fact that uh, all this uh, all this multiplicity of non melody obsessed innovation is happening which again suggests that that the the copyright uh, system might not be that all germane uh, to to uh, encouraging new art forms in in the musical area um and i guess the second thing and it's a, maybe it's just a way of restating the first thing arguably um is at least the copyright melody rule isn't preventing people from doing that it's not a barrier uh, because, because look, it's all this stuff is happening, and you don't get accused of infringement as long as you have a different melody, right? It's very clear what you shouldn't do if you don't want to get accused of infringing, and and once you're clear of that, uh, because it's so predictable as a test, um, you can go do all this other fun stuff. So it's I don't I I, I guess it's interesting that all this other expression to me sounds like oh this is a reason to believe that the test is really good. Rather than to say, look at what we're failing to capture. Right. So, okay. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think this is a good test for, for a, a, a lot of the reasons that, that you mentioned in your second point there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to, to go as far as you just said in your first point that the copyright system might not be germane to the... Um, continued vitality um, uh, of the music business. I think what what is germane is that there is some protection. I mean, in other words, and then I'm not sure if this is what you meant, but like if you just scrapped all of it and just said no protection for any of it. Ooh, I'm, start, I'm starting to get excited over here. This yeah, is that's to- Christian's <laughs> shtick, not my shtick. <laughs> not okay. for copyright, for patent, but for copyright, I, you know, anyway, yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, I don't know if, if anything that I have said here um, would would support that drastic a change, but uh, uh, if um, uh, it, it does seem like um, the these other kinds of musical innovation were sufficiently protected um, by uh, a uh, you could think of as a thicker protection 
um, around just the melodic chunk um, uh, uh, or any melodic chunks that exist um, in, in the, the musical work um, and a, you know, a, a thinner level of protection where if somebody just went out and made a verbatim copy of your entire song, um, okay, fine, that's, um, uh, that, that might be infringing. So, so the, the two of those together seems to be doing enough work on its own, which is why I feel comfortable saying that we're, we're probably not losing too much um, or more than we'd be gaining um, in, in, in clarity of how the test is going to be applied um, if we were to keep the protection um, circumscribed around validity. How about this story, though? Let's, this seems like what a cartel would want. <laughs> that that um uh that a a necessary factor of production is is basically limited in options there are, there are a limited number of options um to serve as a necessary factor in production and that there is a rule of law which prohibits new entrants from using any of the existing options um is that account correct in other in other words if and, you know, maybe skirting around for a second the ambiguity of defining what melody is, but assuming melody is the kind of thing as to which there is nothing new under the sun, at least as we've defined it, so that the large copyright holders basically hold copyrights that could be threatened, at least, against any new entrant. Um, it, isn't there a story here that, that this is a rule of law, which is exactly what a cartel of music publishers would want? Wait, so, so to make sure that I'm on the same page as you, uh, the, the the supposition here is that um, it's it's impossible to uh, uh, write a genuinely original melody. No, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, yeah kinda, Christian, uh, that was too strong an assumption. You don't I'm, need I, to make that assumption to to make this something interesting to cartel to to cartelists, no, well, right? You yeah. could concede that, yeah. Let's say there's all kinds of ways to have all kinds of original melodies, much more uh, creation to be done. Even so. If the cartel holds strong rights in the existing stock of melodies, uh, that is a huge barrier for new entry. Well, that's, it's like a patent thicket in that way, right? I mean, you don't have to have patented every possible thing to, in order to have a very strong uh, um, set of, of possible weapons, right? Yeah. And so, so I think but, you but can relax the assumption you can relax dramatically that's right. about the originality well, I don't know about of dramatically, melodies. But you can, but, you know, because, <laughs> because the, the thing relies on the idea of, of the probability that a new entrant will be slapped with a with a potentially viable lawsuit. In other words, a, there's a s- substantial similarity, or that's a term of art, but there's, yeah. there's enough of a similarity between what a new entrant would come up with and some item in the catalog of the, the, uh, the, the of options for this factor, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that, like, I mean, you, you refer to this in the paper, that there were people who were who were worried, you know, even, even back in the day, that there was... Um, uh, that there were basically no new melodies out there, or that every new melody would be some kind of twist on existing melodies. Now, I, 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 you, again, you don't have to go that far, but you can at least recognize that under some conceptions of what a melody is, because mm-hmm. a melody is not just one string of notes with a with a particular um, uh, with a particular rhythm to them, because there's some there's some zone right or there's some zone around that uh, around which learned hand. Yeah, yeah, where where where, where a, a a regular listener would say, yeah, that's basically the same melody, right? And, and so I don't know how, how precise we could be with that, but you might argue that it's as we create more and more melodies, we're kind of using up a scarce resource under a, right. some conception of measuring those things. So anyway, right. that's that was my supposition. Right. So yeah, I mean, you can imagine that as just a a, a generic critique of all of copyright law. Um, if you're worried about um, depleting the pool 
um, whether it's about music um, or about plot devices um, uh, or uh, or uh, character. I mean, I, you can you can imagine it about a lot more than than just um, music. I guess the the wrinkle is that um, because you have um, you know a a a finite number of uh, of notes in the scale uh, because. Uh, unless we are talking about Schoenberg or, or, or Albenberg, uh, 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 that you have a finite number of combinations. That's. I mean, I guess your point there is right that it's like like mathematically obvious that there are a limited yeah. number of notes. Whereas with with right. uh, with a book, it's 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 probably true that there are a limited number of plots, but it's less it's right. less obvious. Which 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 set, which seems to kind of put the onus on time, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, if copyright is not unreasonably long as it is now, then we're going to kind of cycle through these melodies over time. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a good point. The, the there there you know there's a doctrine that uh, that's internal to copyright law that might be able if if we ever actually did reach that point. So there's uh, there's a doctrine called the merger doctrine that basically says that if uh, uh, you only have a very small number of ways to practically express what you are trying. Um, to express, um, then uh, the uh, copyright owner on that uh, expression uh, does not get to enforce it against you. So you could imagine that kicking in if we really entered a stage where there was just no melodies left, <laughs> um, that you know we would uh, uh, we would break up the, uh, the 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 melody monopolists. Sounds like a Spike Jones movie. It's the like the end of melodies. Well, you know, it's funny because the 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 cover tunes right. Uh, is a byproduct of just this thinking, right? So that that when when they um, in the 1909 Act, I guess, and its aftermath, where they're they're sort of concerned about uh, piano rolls and giving copyright protection from that. The, as I understand, the cover tune uh, compulsory license was was out of a fear that a very small number of music publishers would have assembled portfolios that made it too difficult for other people to get into the music business effectively, and that therefore um, a compulsory license was the way to break that logjam. That as long as the piece had been published, uh, other mm-hmm. people could perform it mm-hmm. uh, as long as they were willing to pay a, a modest fee, right? And in a way, that speaks to a fear about the, you could interpret it as, a, as an expression of a fear about right. the size of the total set of of marketable music, marketable melodies. Yeah. I mean, liability rules are often a solution, right? To a pro- rather than property rules when, when you don't want people to be able to hold out. Right. And right. the holdout problem here is, is, you know, exacerbated by the fact that you don't have a, you don't have a competitive landscape if you don't have enough, you know, if there aren't enough existing melodies to buy. So why not just use, I, I'm sort of, uh, in a way, I'm beating a drum I've been beating for too long already, but, and you guys have no idea. It's actually been for years. Um, but <laughs> like, I, I don't understand why we couldn't do some of this with, at the originality stage, right? That, um, that, that a lot of the concern uh, is in a way captured by the insight in those cases from the 1850s, uh, that, that, look, we ought to take a hard line on some originality issues here as well, so that uh, th- there would just be fewer copyrights that would get asserted in addition to the notion that when, when they do get asserted, what we're going to try to focus on is this fast and frugal heuristic of the melody, just to make the process manageable. 
Um, do you think there's anything beneficial to any any benefit to be had in thinking again about origina- the originality standard and whether it's too low? Once we're going to crack open, as we do in the Blurred Lines case and more recent cases, once we crack open the infringement inquiry to start looking at a lot of things other than melody. So... I mean, you've written about this, Joe, so of course I think there's something to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's not the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I, I am beating my own drum here, um, which, so I, 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 and I appreciate that you've been focused at the originality stage. Um, my, my interest is uh, in how second comers work around um, uh, the entitlements that have already been set up. Um, and I think that there is actually a lot more innovation than um, than certainly copyright people tend to give credit for. Um, uh, I think there's a little bit more of an acknowledgement, certainly from the federal circuit on the patent side, that inventing around is itself uh, a, a potential source uh, of new innovation. That's a, that's a that's a more foreign concept on the copyright side. Yep. Um, and so you know, if if our goal is to uh, ultimately um, uh, uh, to get a, a more uh, 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 creative works um, out of uh, the copyright system, I think that is something that is uh, that uh, where the infringement side of the analysis can do more work than we than we tend to think of. Um, can it also be done on the originality side? Um, uh, yes, in principle, but um, I have two reservations about that. One is, you know. I, I am. I I uh, have this um, terrible inclination where I I, I I imagine that what I propose is actually going to be achievable, um, and that somebody might actually read it and want to implement it. So <laughs> try. I'm trying to um, turn over as few apple carts as I can, um, and so trying to raise the originality threshold seemed to me, um, just on a pragmatic level, to be something that would be harder to do um, than to uh, give a uh, an underappreciated uh, reason for sticking with the same music infringement analysis that we have had for many, many decades. Um, that does seem more achievable. Totally fair. <laughs> yeah, totally fair point. <laughs> uh, that's, so that's number one. And then just on the <laughs> on the merits of it, it, it just seems to me hard. You, Joe, you may be able to convince me otherwise, but it seems harder to me to um, come up with on the copyright side um, to where utility is so much um, up for grabs to to be able to define what is a, a what are the units of originality where we would be able to say that um, is sufficiently original. Um, to pass over this high hurdle, uh, but something else does not cross over that hurdle when you don't have a single other work to compare it to. I think infringement analysis has an advantage where um, uh, you have this fixed comparison where you have work A and work B, and you need to assess whether they are too similar to each other. That seems to me to be um, a more cabined exercise for a fact finder than trying to assess whether work A um, uh, diverges sufficiently from the entire corpus of um, uh, of, of, of uh, publications in that particular genre. And for listeners, the originality is a requirement in order to get copyright on something, what we've been calling, um, uh, um, right. what, what have you been calling it? 
uh, um, I call it copyrightability, but Val- the validity, validity, validity yeah. yeah. Uh, and and one of the only cases involves uh, an attempt to copyright a telephone company's white pages, uh, trying to argue that they basically owned the right to print a directory of phone numbers, and and the Supreme Court decided that was not minimally creative enough. And and Joe, you're in favor of of making the originality requirement more uh, um, more demanding than 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 the court, you know. Well, let's just say the court didn't put a lower bound on it in that case, and that gives you some room to say that it should be higher. And the Supreme Court hasn't ruled it out. But what else? How what how else would you set this up? Well, uh, it is. A, I agree that it's a very difficult. Uh, so it's a much bigger ask uh, than than uh, sticking with a, a, an infringement inquiry that seems to have worked in lots of ways for lots of reasons. Uh, I agree there. Uh, I think you have to start to think about genres. And you start to have you have to start to think about uh, copyright protection attaching to people who do something to bust out of existing genres. So it winds up being much less available on the theory that a great deal of what we now think of as copyrightable expression, when we focus on originality, as importantly including the notion that you didn't copy it from somebody else, you came up with it yourself, right? Uh, well, a lot of what we come up with, we come up with in, in a, a sort of unconsciously imitative way. And, and so it's very pedestrian and like what a lot of other people do in a very similar circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it might be new to you, but it's, it's it, thinking again in patent parlance, it's, it's it, extremely obvious, right? It is, it, and in the precise sense of patent law, it is exactly what everyone else does when confronted with that need. Uh, they respond in this particular way. So think of the business cover letter, right? Um, think of a lot of snapshot photos. Think of a lot of the things that, that technically speaking, because the originality standard is very low and because it attaches immediately upon fixation of the work in a tangible medium of expression, that stuff's technically copyrighted, uh, mm-hmm. which is, I think, alarming um, <laughs> because it is contrary to um, the the sort of, earlier insights about what we would need to protect in order to create a system of industrial production, which is when a lot of these uh, uh, legal concepts were created, right? Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the democratized world of computing and internet connectivity, where suddenly the fact that we're all producing things that are nominally copyrighted- Like tweets. Um, is, is like- really threatens to gum up the works if we took it seriously. Now, maybe the answer to all that is, yeah, but we don't take it seriously. It's not, you know, no one does that stuff, asserting copyright and all that. But I think we're kind of way off the track of of Joe's project. Well, can I try to get us back on? Sure. So so, two things occur to me. One is this question about whether to hoist originality, to use your term, or um, or, or to draw infringement suits differently. It seems like all of these are variables, which are all meant to be, which are all changeable uh, in, in pursuit of a purpose of promoting the progress of the useful arts and sciences. Sure, uh, you know, if we take the constitutional um, uh, purpose statement as the purpose, you know, this quid pro quo idea, enlarging the public domain, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and and without thinking about cop- length of term, how long the copyright lasts in connection with all, it seems like all of these things work together, and so I'm going to think very differently about. Uh, about the effect of the originality bar or whether melody alone is the right thing to look at 
if copyright lasts 14 years once renewable, then life of the author plus 70 years. Those are just point. very, very different landscapes. And yeah. so the other thing I wanted to kind of throw out there, and you guys can chew on either of these you want to, or maybe maybe they go together. I, I tend to think they do. Uh, is is something you get out in the paper, which was you know a, a good chunk of the paper and interesting to me, and that's the degree to which you know if you measure something, you change it, and, and in particular, if you put a criterion in, you end up changing what people do. And so, if we focus on melody, it changes the kinds of music that people create. And you cite some of the work in the um, in the fashion design context um, mm-hmm. as as helping us. You know, where you see people focusing more on trademark than on patent because the trademark is protectable, and that's why you see these designer bags with big trademark elements, right? Because you can't patent the, the design itself. So we just get a different experience of reality uh, or, yeah. or of commerce because of the law, which I guess is flatters us as lawyers because, you know, most of the time we think people don't know what the law is and the law doesn't actually change behavior that much. But, but there's proof positive in IP law that sometimes, um, uh, you know, that, that, that law has a dramatic effect on cultural products. And, and I, I, so I'd be curious as to whether with all of these different variables, uh, you know, uh, that we could manipulate not only kind of what we're looking for, um, how much originality and a melody, if that's what we're looking for to have, how long it should last. Uh, w- the effects on the, on what we produce as humans in this very kind of really, I mean, almost nothing is more intimate than music really, right? Because it, it exists in your head, especially if it's instrumental, right? It exists in your head in a way that it's hard to describe other than to re-sing it, you know, to, to release it to others. So, it seems a very important question. I think one of the hardest problems um, in thinking through copyright policy is what kinds of works do we want the system to produce? I mean, so so version 1.0 of um, uh, the way people would talk about uh, measuring success, um, you know, do we have, is the system giving us what we want uh, is the number of works um, that people are making. It's just, it's just purely quantity. Um, and I think this, the, the, the second generation of, of uh, uh, how people think about how we ought to measure success in a copyright system is, well, what kind of works do we want? Forget about number for a second, but um, do we care about how the law might shape the, the trajectory um, of investment, uh, um, uh, not just uh, uh, the magnitude. Uh, and this is something where I think the patent system has a much easier time, um, uh, may, maybe not an easier time achieving it, but at least it knows what it's trying to do, right? We want um, uh, things that have uh, a, a practical utility, and usually utility is easy enough to identify. Right, the, there are fewer uh, uh, toxic side effects to the drug. Our 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 cars go faster. Our batteries last longer. Um, for copyright law, there's so much more up for grabs because we don't have a clear sense of well, what is an efficient novel? Right, it's not a coherent question. Um, uh, so, uh, I think there are certain pockets where maybe we can say. Um, that uh, what the system is is producing might diverge um, from what consumers prefer. If you have a um, if if you have like a welfare risk framework where that's that's the question that you want to ask. Well, what is consumer demand? Maybe we can identify you know that uh, there actually isn't um, such a strong uh, demand um, for 
you mentioned fashion for 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 Louis Vuitton to plaster um, their trademark all over all of their goods. That's just they do that because that's what the, the um, trademark system rewards uh, the most, and sort of the absence of copyright protection effectively rewards um, the most. But you know, I think with uh, in in the average case, I think it's really hard to say that um, you know the the choice that a creator makes to make uh, work A rather than work B, that there's an obvious answer as to which is the better work for society to get. Um, and that, you know, art is subject to all kinds of contingencies um, from, uh, you know, what somebody's budget is to what the weather is. And I think law is just one other contingency. So to me, the, the bare fact without anything else um, that law might be exerting some pressure on what kinds of works people make. That doesn't make those works any less authentic or any less or, or, or any worse in any significant sense. No, I saw this in the piece and I, I wondered about it because, yes, there are all kinds of things that affect um, the content of art, the content of music. Uh, like you said, the weather, um, uh, natural disasters, uh, um, um, political disasters. I mean, you know, um, uh, political triumphs, uh, maybe, uh, you know, baseball teams winning or losing, whether people are happy or sad, all kinds of things, right? Feed into, because it is a reflection of our culture, right? And, 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 uh, I think many artists take in cultural inputs from all over and, and, and put something back out in the world that resonates with people who have a similar cultural experience, which is why so much art is culturally bound. And, and, uh, you know, it, takes a while to see art that transcends but uh law though it, it seems more intentional like the 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 lawmaker who creates a target for artists to hit if they want to achieve some kind of compensation in a way becomes a kind of co-author but an intentional one which maybe is the only kind of co-author there can be whereas of course the you know the um, the baseball team that wins the World Series that makes the guitarist for a certain band a little bit happier and writes a certain song because of that happiness. I mean, they're, they're a factor. You know, the baseball team was a factor. It's hard to say that they're a co-author. And to the extent that that law is a kind of co-authorship, it seems to me we have to be concerned with what we're co-authoring, right? I think that's a fair point. Just to interject, but I, but I I think it's uh, I think it's a little overstated in that. Um, or maybe overstated, in that we can think of these. I thought you were going to say characteristically overstated. <laughs> no, I've lost some of my pizzazz from the earlier bit of the conversation. <laughs> um, the, but, but I think, look, the, I think the legal effects, many of them, if if not most of them, are 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 at the margin, right? So yeah, that's true. Yeah, and so it's a little overstated to say that the that the law is a co-author, right? The the I think it's more like the the the. The law is the thing that is the reason the battleship or the or the ocean liner is going at one point zero one degrees rather than one point zero zero degrees. Right? Well, but it, the I, I guess so. It's of course, empirical. it affects I mean, where you land, but it doesn't affect it that much. I think in the in the fashion world, like for certain, and, and we're talking about a broad. And this is the other thing I want to get at. We're talking about a very broad field of endeavor. I mean, not all music is like every other kind of music. And, it's true. And just like not all fashion design is like every other bit of fashion design. So, you know, for handbags, there's a, there's a class of handbags where the unavailability of certain kinds of uh, what patent and copyright and the availability of trademark has made all the difference to what those things actually look like. And because it appeals to a certain set of consumers who want to signal that they have a certain kind of thing, right? 
Um, right. But there's plenty of other design, which is not like that, where you're really consuming the design for aesthetic reasons, and, and maybe there's a lot of overlap. And so, too, I guess the chord progressions and bebop example show an area where the, you know, something fundamental about the music seems to have been changed, or at least that's part of your story here, it seems to have been changed by what the law is. But maybe not every, you know, in other areas, the effect is much more, much more marginal. So, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree with um, the, the thrust of Joe's uh, point about marginality, but also, you know, if, if there is some, if, if there were some uh, uh, poetry czar that decreed what the rules for uh, writing sonnets were, I, I wouldn't call that person a co-author of every sonnet that gets written. I mean, I think there's a difference between um, setting uh, the ground rules um, and the boundaries that people need to stay inside of uh, and uh, those that actually then make the stuff that stays inside those boundaries. I mean, it seems um, the, the, the connection uh, between the, um, the body that's setting up the rules and those that then need to play inside those rules seems much more tenuous. I mean, it's like, you know, if, I don't know, maybe you, you, you planted a baseball seed in my mind because you were talking about sports teams earlier. But, you know, I don't think that the um, commissioner's office uh, of Major League Baseball actually goes out and wins the World Series, just sets what the rules are, and then the team wins the World Series. Ah, but the, but, but the crafting of the rules of baseball does, you know, affect how teams play, how players sure. are selected. The kind of move, and so the the product that the consumers consume in the end, that they call baseball, is a function both of the, you know, the the real time skill of players, but the real time skill of players in executing strategies which are devised with the rules in mind. Hey, we I, just we just hit my limit on sports. <laughs> <laughs> so wrap it up. <laughs> oh Sorry. my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, so I was going to say the same, you know, with respect to music. I, I I use the term co-authorship to kind of as an kind of an extremum to uh, to indicate the kind of the to draw this distinction between the the natural disaster or the natural naturally occurring beneficial thing or the or the or the cultural uh, the the you know the the cultural thing that happens, which is an input and and something over which we have some design control that we know is going to affect the way that art is produced and ultimately consumed. And, and so the design, of, so once we know that's going to happen, I guess my only point is that the design of that law has to be concerned with value in the end. Like what, now that we know that people are going to use this as a signal, um, and, or at least as an input into the kind of artistic decisions they make, suddenly we have to be concerned with what kinds of artistic, concept, artistic pursuits are, are good ones, if, if we can't be neutral with it. I think it raises the stakes too on administrability because the yes the value propositions and the value concerns are 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 significant in the way you've just described um but uh even the best set of values is is not really terribly important or or useful if if the thing just completely defies administration right if, right. if you can't actually make a practical go of it and I thought that as the paper that was so, Joe's. That was your central point, wasn't it, Joe? Yeah, that, sort of ending on the yeah. administrability matter. We got to really have a key. way to administer this if we want to have any kind of copyrightability over music at all, and we do want that. And that's kind of an un unstated premise that we do want that, but we do want it because of the standard kind of IP problems. 
that you would have right. if you had no. Be, be, so I, shouldn't I, we be exporting that? Shouldn't we be uh, porting that approach, fast and frugal, uh, to other to other copyright? That a car, that's a car chase movie, isn't it? <laughs> fast and frugal, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, if a senior um, citizens <laughs> going right. to the grocery store or something. Yes, like that, part eighty nine. Yeah. Um, so, 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 Joe, it, how, what, how could we adapt this to other copyright infringement questions? So this is this is a really interesting question, and uh, you know, I congratulations, think, Joe. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I think that it, it uh, translates more easily to certain kinds of uh, works. Uh, that certain kinds of subject matter within the copyright system than to others. Because the thing about melody that makes it work um, within music is that it's um, it's modular. So you can um, conceive, most people can conceive of melody as this discrete part um, of the musical whole. And so when we say, okay, just focus on the melody, that is a, um, uh, that, that task is is feasible. Um, if you were to look at a visual work, um, people, I think, tend to look at that as more of an undifferentiated whole, so right, a painting. Um, uh, and if you were to say, well, just focus on the use of shading uh, or of color or of line, um, I think that would be a much more difficult task for most people to do. Uh, so uh, one area uh, where I think you know, maybe this might have some purchase and it does, you know, I think give rise to a lot of um, uh, accusations of infringement currently has to do with um, character copyright. So I wonder, and this is, you know, the last few pages of the paper where I just wonder what this world might look like. What if um, the same way that we have focused on melody in particular for music, we focused on the name of the character? Um, uh, more so than the other biographical attributes of a fictional character. Um, so that, you know, if you um, wanted to write a, a, a Harry Potter spinoff, uh, but instead you, you know, don't call him Harry Potter, call him, uh, um, you know, Gerald Rosenberg, I don't know, um, uh, uh, something totally different, um, you know, that might not have the same kind of uh, uh, market usurping effect as portraying um, this new character as, um, you know, the next step in the life of the existing character. This is just a totally different character. Um, and it's very easy to tell whether you're using the same name um, as an existing character or not. I mean, it's almost mechanical. Um, and, you know, I think if, if that, I could imagine, um, if that were the, the, the system that character copyrights um, were governed by, um, there really wouldn't be that much um, threat to the market um, for the original character because of the way that, you know, the reason that consumers um, want to read um, the, uh, the next sequel um, in the life uh, of a fictional character is because they perceive that it's part of the same um, lifetime. Um, of the character that they're already familiar with. If you change the identity of that character, even if uh, uh, a lot of the biographical details are similar, it, it's not tapping into the same demand. So that's, that is one area where I think there is a modular um, characteristic that can be broken off and that courts, if they wanted to, 
could focus on, fact finders could focus on without having much of a market destructive effect. Um, I'm in the market for other examples um, along those lines. Hmm. It sounds a little bit more like trademark to me, right? That, yeah. Because uh, I can imagine some in-between cases where the, the character is, um, oh, I don't know, you know, Harry Potter and, and the new book has a kid named Hank with never given a last name who <laughs> goes to a wizarding school and all this. And, 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 and maybe the case would, would, would turn on whether consumers thought that this really was a continuation of the last series, right? And, and so you're really looking at the, whether consumers are confused about the provenance of the thing. Then uh, it seems like it would quickly morph into trademark the more that you isolate particular, particular units as the thing that, you know, just don't do this, right? Just don't do this one thing. Um, and, and maybe Melody is kind of that, you know, that you've said that. I didn't think about it when I was reading your, your coda, but, um, which was, I thought, nicely named. Uh, I didn't, <laughs> but, um, but now that I think about it, in a way, Melody is kind of like a trademark, right? Um, in that it, it, it signals, um, oh yeah, that's that song, right? That's that song. Mm-hmm. Um, even though like a, a Melody completely transformed with, um, uh, by accompaniment and timbre and attitude and, and, maybe dilation of time and all kinds of things you could do to it. it. You, a person listening to it would recognize, would say, Oh yeah, that's that song, but it's been transformed. It's a different experience listening to it, right? right? It's a different artistic experience. And yet the provenance you recognize, I, you know, it's funny. I think if you, I think if you, uh, go to very important in the Western canon, if you go to very important, uh, liturgical works like the Matthew passion, or you go to, uh, certain very significant operatic works. Uh, that is exactly how melodies are used to signify particular characters oh, yeah, and particular course. events within, within yeah. the work. And then that's carried over into the screen, uh, the, the sort of uh, 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 the, the music for movies, uh, the soundtrack experience, right? Uses some of those same thematic things. So, oh yeah, this is the Darth Vader theme. part of the music. This is the, Darth this Vader is the theme Luke and, part yeah. of the music. Um, you ever uh, listen to Song Exploder? The podcast? A what? Song Exploder? No, I have not heard that. How, how about you, Joe? The other Joe? Uh, uh, no, I haven't uh, either. Oh, you, oh you, well, you've got to listen to that. It's a terrific, terrific podcast. Cool. Um, and, and he will interview people about their music and break it down and ask, you know, how they came up with it. And sometimes it'll be popular music sometimes. But he did a whole series of film music um, of, of the, um, uh, the ones which were up for an Academy Award this time, including Moonlight. And, and they mm-hmm. would break it down. Like, here's the... Here's the character. Here, here's the theme. But then I transform the theme for the next twenty years and the next forty years. So your right. the theme is like evolving in timbre and and even though the melody is the same, right? right. It's it's changed. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so just to on a on a different note and okay. and maybe an important uh, pragmatic note for me as I was reading the coda and thinking about the the value the the great value of of having a an infringement inquiry that focuses on a salient modular thing that people seem able to manage um, is when, when I, I think the new light that it threw for me on the, what's troubling about the blurred lines verdict is popular song, blurred lines by correct. Robin Thicke. Is that who it is? Um, yeah. And, and yeah. Pharrell, and I Pharrell, guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But my concern with, with expanding way beyond melody in terms of a, of a theory for infringement is my guess is, that the people who are advocating that we should look well beyond melody in order to prove that there is infringement uh, would, would resist mightily 
the notion that we should also look beyond melody to prove that there isn't infringement. In other words, they would, they would probably say, oh yeah, if the melody is there, you're definitely an infringer. Even if the melody isn't there, if enough of these other things are there, you're also an infringer. Mm-hmm. They probably would not be willing to say, if you have the same melody, but enough of the stuff around it is different, it's no longer an infringement. They would probably say, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that, right? They, so they want both. It's right. like a two-bytes rule instead of a one-byte rule. And, and I'm very uncomfortable about that. <laughs> I, if, like, if you want to use this stuff that's not melody... Actually sounds good to me, but yeah, uh, I, I get it. Uh, then, then I want it to cut against you, not just for you, right? Right. And, 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 that, and if that approach gets taken, then I think the thing becomes as unwieldy as a lot of other copyright infringement inquiries are in other subject matter areas. And, and that doesn't sound very... It doesn't sound like it's worth it. I mean, I think that's right. Um, uh, it's, but I mean, there's this, it's bumping up against this generally applicable, uh, copyright doctrine, which is that, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, a plagiarist cannot excuse the act of plagiarism by showing how much that he didn't plagiarize. So, you know, if, if you write the 300 page book, that's not going to save you, you know, unless some defense like fair use kicks in. But just on the prima facie question of infringement, that's not going to save you if you have part of that 300-page book, a page of it, um, is itself infringing. So, you know, that's it's the same thing with the melody. If you, um, it's not going to save you to surround your copied melody yeah. um, with all this other fancy new stuff um, in the arrangement and in the production. Um, if you have conceded that you copied a protected melody. Yeah, and I guess it's it, it's funny that you mentioned fair use, because that is, of course, precisely the, the place you would go for a principle that says, of course, having a bunch of other contexts transforms it and makes it not an infringement. Um, and so so it's true that the plagiarist can't excuse him or herself that way, but but a transformer can excuse themselves that way. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so, and we call that fair use. Um, yeah. You know, I wish we could talk about this for another 18 hours, but we can't. <laughs> if we did, if we did, then this hour would seem so different, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, nice. Very deep. This really has been terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great paper. It really is. Thank you a bunch. Oh, thank you. This has been uh, a, a treat for me to uh, get to uh, banter about it for, for an hour, even if not 18. <laughs>